Hi, welcome to the Smarter Coaching Podcast. My name is Sam Cowan, and I'm your host. Thanks for finding us. If you've not already done so, I'd appreciate you subscribing at iTunes or at Stitcher for the Smarter Coaching Podcast. And please leave a review and a rating. That really helped me out. You can also download the podcast and read show notes at my website, smartercoachingllc.com. And from there, you can also email me. The email address is smartercoachingllc at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter for announcements about upcoming podcasts. My Twitter handle is smartercoaching. Please leave any tips, suggestions that you might have for me. I really greatly appreciate it. So with that said, let me turn you over to today's episode. Welcome to today's Smarter Coaching Podcast. Before I talk to about today's guest, I want to just a real brief reminder to please go to iTunes and rate the podcast. And also, if you're telling friends about it, um, look on Smarter Coaching as one word if you're doing the search engine on iTunes. A couple people emailed me and said that they weren't able to find it, and I think that was the issue with that. Um, Also, I have my GoFundMe page up, again, Smarter Coaching you can find me there. Appreciate any help you can give. A little sponsorship of the show would be nice. So today I want to talk with, I'm talking with Larry Lauer from the U.S. United States Tennis Association. And Larry is part of the player development group there. And in Orlando, Florida, at their uh, pretty new tennis center. And where they are trying to develop the next group of folks who are going to, American players who are going to win Wimbledon, U.S. Open, Australian Open, which is actually going on as we recorded this. And hopefully to bring back some Davis Cups as well. And uh, Dr. Lauer and I spend a lot of time talking about what USTA is doing, how they've changed the culture there. And um, we talk a little bit about early specialization, not uh, specifically to tennis, just in general about early specialization. Uh, I think Dr. Lauer does a great job of talking about developing character in these young tennis players and that uh, having a strong character can make them better performers on the court and we go into discussing uh, Andre Agassi a little bit and also uh, other players that have uh, we've shown. We uh, kind of venture all over the place a little bit in the map in terms of talking about uh, changing culture and what you can do to uh, help them out. I like the, uh, the saying they have, they want to do healthy, happy champions. And part of that is this character building process. And there's seven values at U.S. Tennis Association. So if you go to the show notes on the smartercoachingllc.com website and you go to the Smarter Coaching Podcast on there, I'll put some links up uh, to USTA and uh, that way you can go through and look at what they're doing and get some ideas. So um, let me turn this over to my interview with uh, Dr. Larry Lauer from the United States Tennis Association. Here today with Larry Lauer from the U.S. Tennis Association. Larry is a longtime researcher in youth sport and uh, looking at coaching best practices in that area and for the last um, year or so I'll get Larry to clarify that he's been with the U.S. Tennis Association so Larry welcome to the Smarter Coaching Podcast thanks Sam I appreciate you having me on yeah hey first how long have you been at USTA uh, time has gone fast I've now been at USTA for over three years uh, no way clo- closing in on four years already yeah since I left Michigan State um but it's been it's been a good run so far. Hopefully, we'll go on for a while. 
Well, let's talk about a little bit about how you got here. What's your background in athletics and coaching? Um, sure. And yeah. Uh, it really, you know, I go back as far as I can. I mean, I four sport athlete, seasonal athlete, played all the sports growing up in Western Pennsylvania. Um, the idea of specialization didn't even really um, cross anyone's mind. And where I grew up, you just played uh, the seasonal sport that everybody did. Um, from there, I got into coaching even as young as when I was in high school. I was coaching baseball. Uh, loved it. I loved working with athletes. Uh, I ended up, as a 20-year-old, I was coaching 16, 17-year-olds in baseball. I uh, was a manager for uh, for the American Legion baseball team in, in Knox, Pennsylvania. And then, uh, you know, went to Clarion University where I... I Knew of this person's professor, Dr. Eastley Krauss, who is a psychology professor at the university. She had done some uh, research on on the class ahead of me uh, in, in sports psychology and, and just looking at their, you know, sort of that class and how they're able to perform. And, and she got me really interested in the psychological aspects of performance. And I ended up taking a class, a special class with her in sports psychology, um, where I learned so much. And, and a lot of it questions I had about my own performance as well as in coaching other athletes, I was starting to find some answers and a lot more questions, but at least I felt like I started to understand a little bit better why we do what we do in sport. Um, and I kept coming across this name, Dan Gould, uh, <laughs> doing all this research, and you you obviously know Dan. Yes. Uh, he's a great man, and uh, so I kept coming across his name, like this guy has done a lot, and really like to meet this guy so interesting enough uh dick taylor who was also at Clarence university had spent time with dan and did uh his studies with dan Gould, and he said look you've got to go you got to go to unc greensboro and so dick put a word in for me uh, i got excited about going to graduate school and, and furthering my my work in that area and and um fortunately dan and i hit it off he decided to take a chance on me because i wasn't the best student um, but I had a passion for what I was doing, and I love sport, as you know. And um, so Dan took a flyer on me. Um, ended up, you know, things went really well at UNC Greensboro with my masters. Um, you know, and, and did a lot of work with uh, the tennis team there. Actually, Dr. Paul Lubbers, who is my boss today, uh, who is the director of coaching ed and performance, senior director of coaching ed and performance here at USTA Player Development was a tennis coach at UNC Greensboro at the time. So one of my first jobs was working with Paul's teams and his players. So it's kind of cool how things have come full circle. Um, so I was doing a lot of sports psych work, really enjoyed it, just delved myself into the world of psychology and performance. And I left uh, school and, and went off to, to work in hockey for a while. I was running hockey programs, uh, which might seem like a diver right there, but I really love ice hockey as well. Um, spent two years running hockey programs for a while in Charlotte, North Carolina, and then I moved on to work with uh, Philadelphia Flyers Skate Zone um, as a hockey director in Pensacola, New Jersey, uh, and Philadelphia Flyers Youth Hockey, which is a great experience to be with the team that I love, um, spending time with them. And then went back to my PhD at UNC Greensboro with Dan because I felt like I really needed to get that doctorate um, to establish myself in the field uh, to be able to start my own business and really have an understanding and credibility to go on my own. 
I did the PhD in my last year. Dan took the job at Michigan State as uh, the director of the Institute for the Study of Youth Sports, and he brought me along, fortunately, um, and had me start out as coordinator of coaching education. So I did a lot of work uh, with Michigan High School Athletic Association uh, in my time there, redeveloping their coaching program, uh, coaching education program at the state level. Um, and I worked with a number of coaching programs over the years there, uh, including uh, Think Detroit Police Athletic League, um, USA Football, uh, a number of different programs. Um, at the same time, I was fortunate enough to, when I was in Michigan, to work with USA Hockey's National Team Development Program, uh, which is in Ann Arbor. I know that's enemy territory, but they let me in <laughs> as long as I left by nightfall. Uh, so I worked with them for eight and a half incredible years, an awesome program, one of the best in the world, I believe. They're developing amazing players who are being drafted in the, in the high rounds of the NHL draft and going on. And so many of these guys now are in the NHL who are yes. doing awesome things and also on the Olympic team as well. Um, so I had that experience. I had the experience of, of working with Michigan State men's tennis, which was an awesome experience as a volunteer assistant coach and mental coach, which really prepared me for the job I have today. So uh, as as the mental skills uh, specialist at uh, player development at USTA. So long, long-winded. No, that's quite all right. I, I think it gives the background and foundation about where you're, where you're coming from and part of the reason I asked you to be on. So let's, let's jump into the U.S. Tennis Association. Describe what you're doing there and how this is a change from what's been done in the past. Um, my, my main roles are to help develop American players um, psychologically on and off the court so that they can become top 100 players. Um, the way I've taken that is we want to de- develop healthy, happy champions. Um, I've followed tennis for a long time. I love tennis, love the sport. I think there's so many great things about it. But there were many situations where the athletes who were at the top of the game had very unhealthy relationships with their family, sometimes with their coaches. Um, you know, it wasn't the healthiest experience, and all this stuff has come out, you know, uh, you know, and we don't have to go into all the names, but they're out well, there. And, well, I think and, Andre Agassi wrote, a, in, I mean, his book, mm-hmm, a, open, yeah. on all that. So I, I, mm-hmm. I don't think that it's a problem mentioning his name since he's been pretty open about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And, and, yeah. and it was a fascinating insight into into him and his experiences anyway. Sure. With, with the sport. To me, Sam, yeah, to me, Sam, that, that book is one that every sport parent, every sports psychologist, every coach, every tennis coach, every tennis player, eventually an older tennis player should read. Uh, it's, a, it's a magnificent insight into the complexity of motivation, into parent-child relationships, into... Um, just into adolescence and, and young uh, men's behavior and, and how we look at things. And there's so many um, amazing stories and, and uh, concepts in that book that really every everyone should be taking a look at. That's one of my favorites. Um, he really, he really uh, I thought he hit a home run with the book. Whether or not people liked the statement that he did not love tennis, right. uh, I, I really appreciated the honesty. And I think he brought another level of understanding to motivation that um, you know it really wasn't his game for the longest time and until he found uh, his as Jim Lair uh, sports psychologist would call it his why 
he connected with uh-huh. why he was playing, which was to help others. Um, that's when you really started to see a change in him. And obviously, Gil Reyes had a huge role in that, as well as uh, his coaches, Brad Gilbert. And, um, you know, so they, unbelievable story. But getting, getting back on point yes. um, with, with player development, we want to develop these players into champions, but also their character. And it's, it's my belief and it's our belief that um, you need high levels of character to perform at the highest levels. Now, that doesn't mean you're perfect because we've seen tremendous athletes who have certain poor character qualities or make bad choices that come sometimes with that. But what we're saying is we want to develop young people who are very professional, who make great decisions, who have high character, who give back. Um, and we talk about every day, we talk about competing like a champion. And we have seven values that I came up with our, with our coaching staff, our national coaching staff. The seven values of competing like a champion, uh, respectfulness, resilience, confidence, professionalism, engagement, determination, and toughness. And these are things we talk about every day. And we want to put the spotlight on character because, A, everyone then can have an amazing experience in tennis if we're all working on helping them become better people. And secondly, we truly believe that if you develop these parts of your life, that it'll cross over other parts of life and make your life better, uh, but it's going to help you become a champion. Um, when you ask athletes what happened in big matches, they'll say, well, you know, I believed in myself. Uh, I, I, I really was prepared to play. I did everything professionally to get ready. Uh, I hung in there. I bounced back. All these things are the values that we talk about every single day with our athletes. And one of the nice byproducts of that has been that I believe that it takes the pressure off our athletes. Uh, American tennis, you know, was getting slammed in, in the newspapers and the media for a while about not having any up-and-coming players. Sure. Um, we, we all knew that and, and saw that, and it was rough, and our players felt it. And then when we were providing all these resources to them, they took that as a kind of an 800-pound gorilla, like, oh, my God, the USTA player development believes in me. I have to change, you know, I, I have to show that American tennis is back, that we're, it was just way too much weight. And we said, look, no. That's not what it's about. It's about you developing yourself to become the best that you can be. If you become the best, resilient, confident competitor, if you compete like a champion, um, then you have really reached a goal. And, oh, by the way, you'll probably reach your dream goals in terms of where you want to be with your tennis. Well, I think it's you know widely accepted that you know, if you if you feel that if you add that pressure to yourself, your performance can go down. And if, if a kid is standing, a kid for male tennis players, if they're a young male and they're standing, you know, on the court at in you know in New York at the U.S. Open, and they're feeling like, oh my God, the entire weight of you know U.S. tennis is on my shoulders. I I, I don't know how you perform under a situation like that. Well, it's certainly not easy, and um, you know, I think the the previous generations that came along and performed well always always had other older generations that were still there. True. Uh, yeah, Agassi, Chang, uh, Courier, Sampras had McEnroe, and they had Connors, and these guys were still around and still, you know, pretty successful when they were starting. So, um, erotic fish, um, Ginepri, these guys had uh, Blake. They had 
the generation I just mentioned come before them. Right. And, and, it, and it ended up, there ended up being this void, unfortunately, uh, and sometimes it just happens. And so the, the new generations coming really didn't have that buffer. It was like, well, okay, there was so much excitement and uh, the hopes of American tennis put on these young players. And, you know, whether you look at, uh, you know, young players who have all this attention and hasn't gone well, well, that burden that was placed upon them, um, whether it was by media, by agents, by sponsors, by coaches, um, whomever, um, we're trying to change the metric to you you judge yourself every day by your character, the decisions that you make and how you live your life, not by uh, did I win, did I lose, did I meet the expectations of the media or whatever. It's about yourself getting better every day, um, making the making yourself the best you can be. And in that journey, then the outcomes will come. Well, that, that's interesting because the first thing that popped in my mind in here, or the first few things that popped in my mind when you said that is that so much of that is stuff you have complete control over, right? I mean, I have complete control of my character, how I react to a situation and the choices I make day in, day out. Um, whereas on a tennis court, some of that is lost. I don't have complete control of the tennis match. So mm-hmm. it sounds like it, it gives the athlete a good locus of control um, for things they can't control and building confidence out of it. Or am I yeah. just being armchair, am I being armchair psychologist here? No, Sam, you, as always, you're, you're accurate. Uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, because if you change the evaluation metric to something you have control over, then a lot of that anxiety goes away because anxiety comes from uncertainty. Um, you know, it doesn't come from you knowing what's going to happen. When you know what's going to happen, a lot of that anxiety starts to go away. It's when there's uncertainty. And the more that we put the metric around things they have control over, I think the better they're going to perform. And, you know, if you listen to, um, Michael Phelps or the Seattle Seahawks or any of these high performers, they're talking about how they're not trying to control the whole event. Right. They're just focusing on their response. And they're not trying to control uh, every competitor around them or the fact that, um, you know, the crowd is going against them or, or whatever. They're just focusing on their breathing. They're just focused on their task in the moment. And, you know, I think that's <clears throat> what we've really tried to emphasize here, um, because again, when when you focus on that and you know in your heart that you can execute, then you can be seriously nervous, you can be upset, you can be frustrated, uh, distracted. If you can bring it back and keep bringing it back to that focus, then um, those things can can exist, but they don't have to influence your performance so much. And a lot of it has to do with being willing to accept um, what's happening, how you're feeling about it, and the thoughts that you have. And if you're willing to accept those things, you don't have to hold on to them. You can focus on your breath. You can focus on your strategy. Um, and it's something we talk with our players about every single day. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Pete Carroll. I just reread Grit by Angela Duckworth. And, mm-hmm. you know, he's a, he's a, I don't know, I shouldn't say a big part of that book, but he's a, he's a part that I really uh, focused on and he talks about that building character and um, and some of the things that she observed and writes about in the book that he does at practices and with players and the coaching staff and and things and uh, it, I like the fact that's come back into sport and especially when it's 
you know, if if they were, you know, four and twelve every year, everybody'd be laughing at him. Mm-hmm. You know, but the fact that he's done this and been successful makes people look and go, you know, well, maybe I can be too. And my hope is that trickles down the path towards you, sport coaches, understanding that too. That um, you know, you don't need to be the stereotype of the you know screaming, raging coach on the sideline. Although Pete has been known to do that too. Um, yeah. But you, you have that behind you. That part of it works. And then sometimes even I think when we go back and look at coaches that we think are these really taskmasters. Vince Lombardi is an example. You see a lot of that in Vince Lombardi's teaching, but people kind of forget about that because, mm-hmm. you know, they, they glatch onto the quotes of, you know, about winning is everything sort of, you know, that's, which is not exactly what he said, but, <clears throat> you know, they latch on that part. They missed that he actually was, you know, very attentive to his players and very, um, and very much into the character issues and having guys that fit that culture as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, well, speaking of culture, because you're changing the culture, or you know, this program is changing the culture of USA Tennis. Um, how did that go when that was initiated? Well, like, <clears throat> excuse me, like any change, um, there can be trepidation. But you know, I used the same approach that I used in Michigan, and, and really. Thinking back to my time with Dan Gould at Michigan State, and we still talk a lot, and, and with the Michigan High School Athletic Association with Jack Roberts and Kathy Westorp and their team, uh, they wanted to implement a new coaching program in a different way of doing these things and also more requirements. And we, we decided that the best way to do that was to engage stakeholders, the people who were going to have to go and do it, who are going to have to get their coach to do it. So ADs, coaches, you know, high-profile coaches, and ask them, what do you want? Um, what do you need? And my first year at player development wasn't coming in and kind of barnstorming and saying, okay, this is wrong, this is wrong, we're doing this, we're doing this, because I would have really met probably quite a bit of opposition. Uh, and, and by the way, this is the first time we've had this position at player development, and it was something that the coaches asked for. It's something nice. the coaches wanted, and they – you know, they got Patrick McEnroe on the board to agree to have this position. So it wasn't um, something where the coaches were like, yeah, okay, if he shows up. It, they wanted <laughs> a sports psychologist on staff. So, but it was how we get it done. So my first year I had great advice from uh, Jay Berger, All Mom Quest, Paul Lovers, um, Patrick McEnroe, these guys saying, look, you know, be gradual, spend time with the coaches, listen to them. Um, build up your needs assessment, understand the culture, and after a year, then come back in and really then start to um, be a little bit more poignant with your, your initiatives and, and what you want to do. And that's I think that's what we did. And I, I spent a lot of time listening to the coaches. Um, and this, this wasn't a political move. This is truly what I believe what matters because at the end of the day, um, the coaches are the point of interaction with the athletes. So I... Yep we got to be on the same page. So um, so everything I do, I, I'm talking to the coaches about, you know, what do you think about this? What are your ideas? Uh, when I walked into the office today, uh, coaches pulled me aside and said, Larry, I know you got a session with the boys this afternoon. Uh, can you talk about this? Yeah, sure. They, mm-hmm. They're spending a lot of time with the players and not as a lot more than I do. So I need to be able to listen to them. So to get this whole idea going, um, I had support from 
from uh, Jose Higueras, our director of coaching, and, and the other folks I mentioned. And we started talking about um, what values are most important to us. And, and when the coaches really were involved in that process, then it was a lot easier to ask them to emphasize. Um, I, I have found our national coaching staff very professional and very easy to work with. It's been awesome. Um, but I think it had to do, A, with the leadership. Um, and, and since Martin Blackman's come in, he's he's been pushing the character agenda very strongly, which has been great for, for what I'm trying to do uh, with our team. Um, but really, the leadership has had my back since day one, which is crucial. Uh, and we've been communicating a lot. And secondarily, um, you know, we engage the coaches. We ask them what they wanted, what was most important, how do we do this? Uh, down to the nitty-gritty, Sam, of, okay, I send ideas, articles, resources, quotes to the coaches every so often. And I asked them, I said, look, you know, if I send you something every other day, is that too much? Is every week too much? What's the right amount? And they said, look, Larry, if you send us something every two weeks, then that's probably around the right amount. So Awesome. You know, it's just it's just trying to um, help them be their best. And, you know, again, Jose has been awesome to work with and a great mentor here at USTA Player Development because he's continually telling me, he tells me to keep it simple, but he also tells me really work with the coaches, spend a lot of time with the coaches. Uh, and it's, it's been a great, uh, great, great run so far. So, mm-hmm. Well, you're you talk about your national team staff that's there in Orlando at your you said you guys have been in this facility for about six months you said uh, we've been in the facility for two months okay ac- actively uh, but I've been in Orlando for six <clears throat> that so. I, I knew I had the six in there somewhere but yeah. um, what what about the coaches that are outside that group I mean mm-hmm. you know getting that message and and maybe changing that culture to people who who aren't there and you know interacting with you on a daily basis how's how's that been going great question we we kind of we've talked about this a lot uh, by the way and how do we how do we work with um the american tennis coaching public because a lot of times the ngbs are seen as sort of um you know, ivory tower, come down, yes. you're doing this, and then they're disengaged the rest yep. of the time. And we really wanted to change that. So in, in the climate of really um, involving everyone and having alignment, Patrick McEnroe and our leadership went out and met with all the sections and talked with them about the needs of player development and, and what they needed and how we could work together. And one of the best things they call it you know really about being inclusive that they've done is to listen and to listen to coaches out in in the in the parks and in the academies and what do you need what do you what do you need from us because a lot of times too you know you get um perceived as someone who cherry picks players and the, and the coaches in the community do all the work that's not really not that's not how we want to be seen um, and that's really not how we do things. Uh, we're we're in partnership with the American coaching public, and and so the the tack now is we don't bring players in full time. Young players who stay with us twelve months a year, they might come in for a week, two weeks. We might go on a trip with them or national coaches, but we invite their coach in, their primary coach. Sometime um, we'll invite the primary coach to go and in place of a national coach. Sometimes, 
and we'll certainly communicate back to them um, what we're doing, and we'll first ask. And we never, you know, we're not going to just make a grip change on a player and say, look, well, on your <laughs> forehand, you have to change the script. We're going to first talk with the, with the primary coach and say, look, this is what we see. Here's what we think would help. What do you think? Because we know we have to have them engaged and, and bought into the whole process. And just that kind of inclusive communication has done wonders for perception of USA uh, tennis. From where I started, even before having an eye on tennis, because I was consulting with pro athletes and uh, working with juniors as well, the perception of, I think, of USTA and player development is changing and it's more positive. But I think it's because we're being inclusive, we're listening, um, we're engaging coaches, we're inviting them in. We have a department, our player identification department, so they work in the space of like 11 to 14 year olds and they have camps. One of the amazing things that they're doing is they're inviting in the primary coaches of players who are invited to the camps and then they have a coaching education program for them. They talk about, yeah, we talk about all the things they're doing. They meet with me, they meet with strength and conditioning, they meet with athletic training, they meet with um, whomever, you know. If I can't go there, I'll send another sports psychologist who works at one of our regional training centers to go. But it's engaging them and showing how they're part of the family and we're letting them in the door and saying, look, this is how we do things. Do you agree? How can we make it better? How can we help you? Uh, and I think that inclusiveness and engaging them and, and also at times paying their way to come and giving them an experience um, really helps. We don't always do that because we can't, we don't have the, even though everybody thinks we have a budget that is just, <laughs> you know, never, it's infinity, uh, it's not true. Um, yeah. For what we're doing, we have, we have the lowest budget of the four uh, Grand Slam nations, but nonetheless, we are trying, we know how important it is to involve coaches uh, around the country and help them feel like they're part of the mission. Well, I, I like that. Having having been in the NGB world and, and faced that, you know, where mm-hmm. I've had coaches out in the field who, you know, are in Maryland. And, and and when I started at USA Cycling, there was very much that, well, you know, all you guys do is come in and try to tell us how to do what we're doing. And we're with these kids every day and, and whatever. And I first thing was like, no, that's that's not what I want this to be. Mm-hmm. And I think when you break down, you engage them, it makes it a lot harder for them to say that and think that, like you said, that you're in this ivory tower, in, in my case, in Colorado Springs, and you don't really know what we're doing out here. When when they interact face-to-face with us, it breaks down a lot. It doesn't mean we're not going to disagree, but at least it makes it a, lo- a lot harder for them to sort of badmouth and say, well, you know what, I right. sat down with Sam, and actually he heard me out, and here was his take on it, and you know, you you, yeah. you loop them in, even though you may end up leaving going, no, I still think, you know, a Western grip is the way to go kind of thing. Right. And, right. Right. Um, and we have, we have those disagreements, but the concept that we're using that I've really kind of, I guess, maybe borrowed from the USOC is the idea of performance teams. Yeah. But in, in tennis, we're talking about if you have a player, um, your performance team is your primary coach at home. It's a national coach, potentially, who's working with you. Uh, it's your athletic trainer. It's your strength and conditioning person. It's your sports psychologist. Um, whomever's on your team, your parents. Um, and that group, at least at our level, is meeting three times a year and sitting down talking about goal progress and, and what needs to be worked out and how everybody needs to play their role. 
Um, and, and this is part and parcel of what we're talking about because I believe when you start saying to the coach in the community, saying, look, I know you developed this player and you have gotten him to this point and I respect that and I want to keep you as a part of the team. We yeah. want to hear your voice. We're going to take you on a trip here when we can and we want you to come to the training center and watch the training that we're doing and give us feedback and come on the court. Uh, so now that that's we're talking about the top end players, obviously, but um, the trickle down effect is that we hope that um, coaches are beginning to see this model and saying, look, it's it's not about me hanging on to my player and, and not letting anybody else help. I'm a part of a system that's yeah. going to allow this player to come the best they can be. Yeah. Well, I also like part of what you said there. I, I think that taking those coaches on some of those national team trips or having them as that staff, the, the other great thing you're doing is you're you're developing a generation of coaches so that when that national team coach says, I'm done with this, you know, I'm, you know, I'm retiring, whatnot, you've got a pool of people that have some experience in the area and, and you know that can do the job. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of NGBs miss that aspect of it. So that when a national team coach leaves, they go scrambling to find somebody, and but that person may not have the skill set to take a team, you know, to Poland for a tournament or a bike right. race or whatever it may be, and that's a whole different skill set than teaching them how to hit a really good forehand. True, and they may not understand the philosophy that's in place, yeah. the coaching philosophy, the the culture, and. Um, that's something that we spend a lot of time on as we talk about our coaching philosophy every chance we get. Um, and it's, it's been a long process since Jose got involved, and I think in 2007, but just talking to him yesterday, he really feels like um, the culture is, is coming. Like we're, we're, we're not there yet, but we're getting there. But it's because we've spent so much time communicating and, and reaching out. And, um, and again, I want to say this is genuine. It's not spin like, well, politically, if we do this, we'll get what we want. No, we mm-hmm. truly believe that their coaches should be involved and, and the great work that they do should be recognized and they should be part of the family. That's the best way for all of us to to achieve our goals. Yeah. Um, I, want, I want to change gears, but this may apply to tennis, but, but broaden this out a little bit uh, okay. on the topic of early specialization. Mm-hmm. Um, First of all, give your definition of early specialization before we go on so that if people have different ones, at least they understand where you're coming from as we discuss this. Yeah, I mean, in my mind, uh, and I'm trying to think back to my textbook definitions, <laughs> but uh, I mean, try, again, keeping it simple, this is someone who at, at a young age is choosing to play one sport pretty much year-round, playing and training in one sport. Um you know, so that, that that's just not competing, but also training. And, and right. you think about all the stuff that we read, the repetitive motions uh, on a young body, um, you know, the travel, um, all those kinds of things, and, and what you miss in your athletic development as well as your skill development, um, you know, when you specialize early. But, you know, and when you look at... Uh, you look at certain guidelines. I mean, there's different ideas out there. I think, um, you know, I think Aford at the time came out with, you know, before age 15, you really don't want to specialize. But then you got stuff like gymnastics. So there's right. always these um, these exclusions. But, um, you know, I, I, what I would say to parents is, you know, it probably, you know, you want to wait until you, 
you're getting through that skill development time and letting, letting them sample. And when you start to see that they really, this is what they want, and, mm-hmm. and, the, and a coach agrees with that, and another coach who has no interest in the player agrees with that, uh, and you things start to line up, then maybe you think about uh, going all in, you know, when you can answer certain questions. But until then, um, I, I don't think it's necessary, as you can see from some of the recent research on, you know, players drafted into the NFL. So. Right, and and I, I love that a lot of high-profile coaches and Urban Meyer jumps out, and um, I, I'm I'm no uh, huge fan of Urban Meyer. I'm a University of Georgia alum, and he once coached at Florida. Therefore, yeah, uh, yeah. therefore, I, I shouldn't even utter his name. But nonetheless, <laughs> I, I do like the fact that he has been, you know, he's openly said he, he likes guys who he likes his football players to have played other sports and. I think over the last three signing seasons of Ohio State, something like ninety. There's something north of ninety percent of his players, you know, played other sports in high school besides just football. Mm, and, okay. um, and and I mean, you know, again, it kind of goes back to the thing. If 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 this guy who is one of the best college football coaches around, um, you know, is promoting this, and I, I just hope that message trickles down to you know the the under ten coach out there who, yeah. and, and you know who looks at this and. Uh, goes with that. Um, you, you had mentioned some of the research we've seen on early specialization. Maybe elaborate on some of the uh, problems that could come along with kids playing just one sport uh, year-round, whether not necessarily just competing, but like you said, practicing just that one sport. Well, yeah, and and, and we got to remember this is much about people making money as it is to what's best for the kids. Um, you know, we see we see a higher incidence and 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 sort of chronic type injuries, so repetitive motion type injuries. Uh, we see, probably see more burnout um, when you when you specialize earlier, when you're training 12 months a year in one sport. Um, so you start to see some of these things come out. And, you know, if you look at the, at the data, um, even going back to the Michigan State data, where, you know, 75% of kids change their primary activity by age 13. Um, mm-hmm. where I don't think most kids were meant to do one thing when they're growing up and just focus on it they kids were meant to explore and and try different things and figure out what they're passionate about but what we see the societal trend of really ramping up the the clock on you need to figure out what your career path is early you know the kind of tiger mom kind of thing and unfortunately they're taking the the play out of childhood and and really making it about you know, getting a scholarship, what your career should be when you're 18. And, you know, I think that it's done It's done a lot of things to kids. It's created a lot of performance anxiety. It's created, a, a, I think, uh, a very strong ego uh, environment in youth sport. Um, there's very much a bent toward immediate gratification. So we talked about, you know, letting players play multiple sports, um, but yet, you know, you have the parents who cite Tiger Woods and, and some other athletes and say, well, you know, the path is is you specialize early and you put all your eggs in one basket. So they're not really necessarily looking at the truth of what's going on here or the facts um, because they get hung up on sort of the, the really, you know, played up stories in the media or just the immediate gratification of more is better, which is kind of yeah. the, the edict in, in – American culture, unfortunately, um, 
And so that's what they do. They see talent, they see something early on, um, and, and then they just push and push and push until the kids have injuries, until they are burnt out, until um, you know they're entrapped in their sport and, and they have great degrees of performance anxiety and, and, and feel like failures and, and extremely stressed out young people. So, um, you know, I, I think as a nation we need to, we truly need to uh, take a look at the facts, and this can go beyond sport, but um, what's really going on, and, and we need to do a better job of communicating that for sure in, in, in research circles and academic circles, but, you know, but now spending time with youth coaches, I think it is trickling down. You'll hear more and more coaches talk about having the kids do other things, but got to understand that there's a lot of people making money on you training 12 months a year yes yep and that will always <clears throat> always always be there and, and you in parents adults coaches have to be making good decisions based on what's best for the kids health yeah and the, and the long-term well-being and and other as well not just the injury issue too yeah I, I think yeah, you know, psychologically. Yeah. yeah, I think Tiger Woods is the you know the the poster guy for you know that early specialization thing because it was so public. I mean, he was on you know the video of him on the Mike Douglas show at whatever two or something you know chipping mm-hmm. balls. But I always point to people that's awesome. But how many other kids who you know how many other parents got their kids to be playing golf and only golf at age four and you never heard of them? Exactly. My, my gut tells me for every one Tiger Wood, there's hundred maybe i don't know i'm pulling numbers out but there's a good number of kids who their dad tried to do that and it turned out badly um Mm -hmm. you know uh, you you were on um the panel on um was it state of play play. on the hbo series yeah trophy Mm -hmm. kids one which which i saw and you were on the panel with todd marinovich who's also um if you follow college football as i have for Mm -hmm. most of my life He's the other kind of poster child for this early development that mm-hmm. really went bad. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, he he did he ended up in a really bad spot at, at a point in his life, and he's very I think been very open and forthcoming with that as well. And absolutely, um, and you know, I mean, his life was so regimented around that. And the other thing that comes to mind was the is it was Malcolm Gladwell's the whole ten thousand hour rule thing. I think so many people jumped on that and started doing the math and figuring out well gosh my kids gotta start this at four if he's gonna be there he's gonna get 10,000 hours you don't take you know 10 yeah. years 12 years to do that and I, I think that I think people kind of ran with that really simple notion and, and um, you know and kind of took it to an extreme but I, I'm sure that Gladwell never intended it to be um, taken that literally um, yeah. as part of that so well um, I think it, they missed the, they're missing the concept of transference from sport to sport Exactly. Um, you know where you can you can do uh, different things, and and then just again the character aspect. I mean, we see a lot of these athletes who specialize early, and when all of the eggs are in the basket of performing in this sport, they miss out on a lot of a lot of other experiences, and 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 sometimes you see that in their character. I'm not saying all of them, but um, you know we certainly we see more relationship issues. I think when when athletes are specializing early and and I think the the most um, the most difficult part of this for those athletes is when they didn't make the choice 
when the choice was made for you, and this is what I said on the panel, and I don't think it made the cut on the HBO, but the, the most powerful theory of motivation uh, in psychology that we found is self-determination. And you people want to be self-determined, and it creates fulfillment, it creates a motivated life. And a lot of these athletes, when we can go back to Agassi, for example, the choice was made for them. And, and then... You start to see the cracks, and there's there's a lot of other, you know, if you look at some of the risk um, for drug abuse and and some different things where they talk about how when people are under stress, um, the cracks come out other ways. And I think this especially happens for players who are entrapped in a sport; they can't change because their parents won't let them, or they don't want to hear it. So yeah. then they they start doing drugs, they start drinking alcohol, they engage in risky behavior. Uh, as an outlet for this stress that they're having in their in their daily life, um, it's it's sort of a it's a, it's you wouldn't think it intuitively, but you're struggling in one area, so then you vent in this other kind of risky way, and and it's dangerous. And and you, you can look at the Marinovich case for sure, and he he's talked about it openly on ESPN and on HBO, yeah. um, where you know the dad was well-meaning, but he saw talent. He knew how to develop a professional athlete, and his son became his project. And unfortunately, the emotional side got lost in the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, he developed him into a, a guy who was an NFL quarterback. Absolutely. I, but he was an NFL quarterback for a handful of years, too. Um, and and it's, it's really, I, I, this, I've never, this is the first time I made this connection. You know, kind of the polar opposite of that in some ways, maybe Peyton Manning. Mm-hmm. Who, who certainly grew, I mean, uh, all right, this is off the top of my head, and I may come back and edit this part out if it sounds really stupid, but, you know, Peyton Manning grew up with a guy who, as a dad, who certainly knew what it took to be an NFL quarterback. I mean, he's yeah. kind of one of the legendary ones, and having grown up in the Southeast, I'm a Falcons fan, I, you know, remember Archie Manning because Falcons played him twice a year. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Archie knew exactly what it took, but I think also that may have helped because Archie knew exactly what that lifestyle was like too. And right. I think that part of it, he could see and balance it out with Peyton and Eli. And, um, you know, their their careers have certainly been um, highly successful, I, I think. I think I, I'm going I'm to go out on limb and say they've had a highly successful professional career. I would say so. I, I think it'd be hard to argue that one, even though Giants fans don't care for Eli too much sometimes. But anyway. <laughs> be so. careful what you wish for. <clears throat> exactly um, right. Yep. When he's gone, you're going to miss him. I, I, I yep. would say you know, that's that's a good example. And, you know, I don't know that story in, in and out, but I my understanding, just if you're know, looking at tennis with Agassi and Steffi Graf, but, you know, just hearing in the media what they talk about, um, they haven't really ever pushed tennis on their kids because they they just experiences that they had in the sport and they want their kids to have a full life and get yeah. to choose what they want to do and uh, I think that's a lot of credit to them. Um, and I, I do think you see a lot of pro athletes because they've lived it. They have a perspective that people who have not uh, can't have, and so they see all the pain and the suffering and the things that they missed to yeah. to achieve this amazing goal, and they don't always want that for their kid. Yeah, you know. Okay, so you're the sports psychologist, and you're you're not an academic as much anymore. But you know, this this comes to mind of I'm, I'm thinking about you know 
athletes now, and I'm in, I'm in my 50s, and so I, you know, I remember their, you know, maybe moms and dads, and probably typically dads in most cases, <clears throat> and looking at this, going, think about the athletes right now. You, you've got the McCaffrey um, family. Whose mom was a very good athlete as well. She was a Stanford soccer player, and of course, Ed was a, a, a longtime NFL player. And then um, uh, the mom's dad was an Olympic 4x100 meter gold medalist and stuff. So you have this lineage. It, it would be interesting to get those parents talking about, you know, what did what did they do? You know, there there's some very mm-hmm. high profile ones. Uh, you know, Andrew Luck is another one. Um, yeah. You've got Grant Hill, who's you know dad. Um, was a football player and you've got all these different folks out there whose kids are now coming up in the sport and I'd be curious to hear their side of this you know to have a have a state of play discussion with some of them to talk about that aspect and um, and I'm probably missing some where there's some kid who went off and was the son of a great athlete and well known and just you know went off into some you know drug-induced haze and all that but right. um I, I think maybe some lessons to be learned for parents who are pushing their kids to go yeah look at what these guys did and and you know they turned out to be peyton manning eli mating or you know griffey jr and those kind of guys mm-hmm. um <clears throat> i have to find somebody that can do that research maybe kristen diefenbach would take that on at some point in time we'll talk well, her into it and yeah. oliver oliver luck is that West Virginia, or was it West Virginia? As the he was. So. <clears throat> yeah, she, she, she knows him pretty well. He's, he's the VP for the NCAA now. Okay. He's vice president. I can't remember what his title is. It it sounds like a title that was kind of made up because they wanted him in the organization. That, that's I mean, I'm, I'm somewhat joking there. Oliver's <laughs> a brilliant guy, but it seemed like it's like, we want him in here. Let's just let's figure out something, some way to get him in there yeah. uh, and do that. Yeah. Well, well, one of the things we're talking about with the, the – this playing other sports too and i went to a conference a couple of years ago that uh Hart, our colleague dave mccann put on up in denver and in one of our small breakout sessions there was a soccer coach from one of the soccer clubs up in denver and he said two things that really jumped out at me one was he was a soccer coach and he encouraged his players to play an individual sport um at another time of the season and i was like why? why I mean why push an individual sport so he was thinking golf or tennis um, and, and his point was it teaches them that they have to be self-reliant because mm-hmm. their outcome is completely dependent upon them I'd never heard that before and I thought that yeah. was kind of interesting and then you know the flip side is an individual playing on a team sport because you have to learn to work with other people and I, I drew that one in and then somebody mentioned in the in this too about one of the things that could be great about playing different sports is you come across different personalities and you have to learn to deal with them and um and that can help in the sports setting but then also they took it into this you know it helps you when you go out in the world and you know so many parents talk about why do you want your kids playing sports and they talk about you know well i want them to learn life lessons and how to do setbacks and all this stuff and then sometimes their actions don't really you know follow what they say but at least they're kind of saying that, but I thought the different personalities part was an interesting take on that as well. Um, yeah, it certainly is. And I mean, if you if we look at tennis, I, I talk to a lot of the players and I'll ask them, you know, how did you get started? Why did you get started? And maybe what, you know, often ask, why did you begin to specialize in tennis? And they'll say, you know, I, I was becoming good at it. I could, you know, I could win a lot. But a lot of times they'll also say I, I chose tennis over, team sports because 
I like the fact that I'm responsible for the outcome. Yeah. That there's yeah. not I'm relying on anyone else, and and you do see that little bit of that personality type, uh, you know, come out in tennis. Uh, but I think it's a great idea to have kids, and and I think about this with my own kids that they play individual and team sports for all those reasons, mm-hmm. uh, because you you need those different experiences. Um, but but I think that. Uh, you know the character is what you're talking about. The character you can learn, the 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 lessons that you can learn, and working with other people, and and teamwork, and respect, and um, the confidence you can gain from succeeding in an individual sport, going back into your team environment. Uh, yeah. I think all these things really become influenced by these experiences. Leadership um, is, is one I think of as well. So. To me, you know, if parents are listening to to this, I would say, you know, really of children who are under, you know, most children and then the ones who are high-performance athletes still into their early teens, let them play another sport. If they're mm-hmm. playing an individual sport, let them play a team sport to get that experience and vice versa. I see it with tennis players. I mean, um, we know that they need to be selfish because – their whole life is centered around preparing for um, their match, not for anyone else. Their match, right. which has some, it has a lot of influence on personalities. And at the same time, we want to create a team environment, and those things come in conflict. So we see, you know, those things come to a head sometimes because they've grown up where um, it's always been about them and their sport and their preparation. And now we're saying, look. Um, you go on this trip, you're going with three other athletes. Um, yeah. and you, you all need to work out the schedule of, you know, when, <laughs> when, where you're going to eat, when you're going to eat, because we're not doing four different trips to a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so and that can be that can be uh, tough for some of them, and I think it's very good um, for them. So within tennis, I'm a huge fan of uh, the team events because yeah. uh, our players our players need it. Yeah, they really do for their character development. Well, you, you mentioned that, and as I said, I'm a University of Georgia alum, and when I was at Georgia, uh, Georgia hosted the NCAA tennis tournament in, in the 80s, I think, for some like 18 years in a row. I, it's some incredible stretch because they had the mm-hmm. facilities that nobody else had, and um, and, and I, I knew a couple of tennis players on the team, and um, you know th- that team environment seemed really fun. I, I, I enjoyed when. You know, one guy would finish his match. They would stick around, and watch the other guys playing, and cheer them on, and and whatnot. And I, it didn't really dawn on me uh, until kind of later on that you, you know what, growing up when they were juniors, they probably never had that real experience of being on a team. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, here they're in this college environment, and, I, and probably some people probably don't adjust very well to that, and some people probably just love that. And then, mm-hmm. and then, uh, and I kind of see it would you know at least. My perception of Davis Cup is that way. A lot of guys talk about what a great experience that was because, yeah. you know, they're representing their country, but I think also they've got other people cheering for them too, other players that right. isn't probably going to happen at Wimbledon <clears throat> kind of thing. Well, we, um, yeah, no, it's such a great point. And we were talking about this yesterday in a coach's meeting that we've really tried, again, to change the culture where American players are cheering for American players they're going to their matches and supporting, and I and I think our coaches have done a great job of this, and our players are doing it. They're going and they're at the Australian Open, and they're going yeah. and watching, uh, you know, Coco 
Vandaway play her match, and they're 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 supporting her. They they truly want her to be successful, you know. Excellent. So, a lot of times in the past, it's been well, you know, kind of more negative, competitive. Where well, if she does well, then what does that mean? You know, I'm not doing as well. We've tried to break that whole concept. Say, look, if your friends, your teammates are doing well, that can just lift you because that's going to make you better. Um, right. And it's it, it's taken time, but I think that you know um, everybody's made strides in there. We, we make them practice together, um, mm-hmm. compete compete a lot in practice because we just believe in it. We believe in the value of competing together and striving together, and um, you know I think we're seeing the benefit of it. You you mentioned Coco Vanderlei, another one that comes from a pretty successful yes. athletic family as well. So <clears throat> yeah. She's, She's talked about the confidence that that gives her. Um, mm-hmm. She has a lot of belief because of her athletic background and growing up around all those great athletes. So that does. She she says it helps her quite a bit. So yeah, yeah. And, and for those that don't know, her, I mean, her dad is the one that I know the most about Kiki. And I Kiki played well, for the Denver Nuggets for a while and played at he, UCLA. And yeah, yeah. Kiki's her. Uncle, uh, uncle. I'm sorry. Right. Kiki's the uncle. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well, that confidence must have uh, must definitely run in that Gene family because I don't think he ever. Uh, there was never a shot that I don't think he thought he could make. So. Yeah. Um, he, he was yeah. a prolific scorer. Um, yes, he was. Yeah. So um, with that, all right. Hey, um, Larry. I, uh, I I know I appreciate you taking time, and I don't want to uh, mm-hmm. take uh, much more any time. So I have some last few little follow up questions right here for you. Um, mm-hmm. One is how can people learn more about what you're doing, what USTA is doing? Do you are you on Twitter? Do you blog? How can people find out more? Well, in terms of USTA player development, um, we have we have Twitter, we have all the social media, so you can just look up USTA uh, player development, and okay. you'll learn about the events we have going and what we're doing. Um, on the mental side, uh, I'm on Twitter. I don't tweet a whole lot and I, I certainly don't tweet about the athletes I work with but um, you know so I'm on there but um, probably the easiest way you know is we're putting stuff out through our social media about the seven values and we have stuff on our USTA player development website as well on sports psychology we're going to be adding to that throughout the year so um, people can can come to the USTA website look at player development look for psychology and they can find resources um, as well as our uh, our, what, is, what is the app? It's our. Uh, sorry, I'm gonna look. I'm gonna tell you the app right now. I'm gonna look at it. It's our USTA TV app. So a lot of our videos. Okay. Uh, all training. All right. Fishing videos. Look at. Uh, as well. So uh, I think those are probably good ways to find out what we're doing. Okay. Um. If you could, if, if, if you had a Harry Potter magic wand and you could eliminate one coaching practice that coaches are doing, what would you eliminate? Uh, I, I think I would eliminate the, the lapse lines and lectures. I truly would um, because I think we just waste so much time having kids stand around and they get bored sure and then they start to misbehave and then we get upset at them but <laughs> they've got a they've got a racket in their hand and a ball and they're standing around yeah you gotta get them they gotta get them moving they gotta get them learning by being active uh so that that's what i would do because 
I truly believe we waste so much time on the court or in any sport really standing around talking making them do laps you can do all that stuff off the ice off the court off the field uh, at a different time and it's very important to do uh, but with young kids not so important spend much more time on competing learning how to deal with mistakes by the way Hey, this is Sam, your host, dropping in here real quick at the end there. Um, we had a little trouble with Skype, Dr. Lauer and I did, and I was pretty much done with the interview anyway, so I decided not to come back and try to get him on and, and record a finish to that. So I apologize for the abrupt ending, and I hope you really enjoyed the uh, listen to Dr. Lowry talk about what he's doing at USA Tennis. Thank you. Hey, thanks everyone for joining me for this podcast. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, again, reach out to me with feedback either through Twitter, Smarter Coaching, my email address, smartercoachingllc at gmail.com, or via the website, smartercoachingllc.com. Also, if you've not done so, please subscribe on iTunes, leave a rating, leave some comments there, but uh, give me some feedback on how I'm doing. I'm really interested and looking to improve the podcast. Hope you have a great week and hope to catch you back here on the Smarter Coaching Podcast on our next episode.